0: Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 sales and marketing and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Well, this is Perry Marshall in the Evolution 2.0 podcast and video, and I have some special guests here today. Um, I have uh, Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, and uh, they have written this book here. And it's called A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age. And Claude Shannon is probably one of the 100 most important thinkers of the last 100 years. I think that, that could be a very reasonable statement. Um, and um, I don't know if there's any other biographies of Claude Shannon, but this is the first one I've run into. And so I wanted to uh, introduce these guys and... Rob's a doctoral candidate at Columbia University in New York, and he's written things that have appeared in Slate, Atlantic, Nautilus, and, uh, and, and then he's got this book uh, that he's co-authored with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy is an editor and uh, author who's worked with the New York Observer, Washington Examiner, Huffington Post, and um, he's in New York. And so, gentlemen, welcome, and I, I can't wait to talk to you about this book. Thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah,
1: thank you very much, very Really appreciate it.
0: So, you know, it's, it's one thing to learn about an intriguing guy, but what pushed you guys over the edge and caused you to say, geez, you know, we, we actually ought to, I mean, a biography is a lot of work. <laughs> what yeah. what What was the triggering event that caused you guys to decide that you want to do this?
1: Well, it actually originates from another book, um, which is the idea factory by John Gertner. And so I was given that book as a gift by a friend. And I think the friend somewhat half jokingly said, Hey, the subject of your next book should be Claude Shannon. Uh, I think he sort of said it in Jess, um, which just goes to show, be careful what you joke about <laughs> because it could turn into a half decade long quest to write a biography, <laughs> but his, his, uh, his sort of assumption and 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 there's a kind of the basis for the joke was that he didn't know of any other biographies of claude shannon and in throughout john gertner's book which is a narrative history of bell laboratories shannon is this very intriguing figure Uh, brilliant playful uh an incredible mind somebody who isn't well known And the more i dug into his life and, and talked to rob about his life i said you know there might be something here and so we just at some point, you know, kept reading and reading, and then said, "Let's let's go for it." We pitched it to uh, our agent, and then to Simon and Schuster, and and they thought the same. And um, and we figured, let's let's go for it. And, you know, it turns out I think you know there were so many areas that he did so much in his life, and there were so many areas that were underexplored, um, because he had such a fertile mind, and he cut across so many different things. And so I like to think. And, you know, other people have said uh, that, that we've added to to what was available on him because we were able to, to, to just do a second look at his life. Uh, there have been other really wonderful books where Shannon is a figure, but this is the first uh, full-length biography of his life.
0: Well, it, it's very deserving because I, I just don't think most people really understand that. Uh, well, he, he, you could say he laid the foundations for a whole technology that runs the world now but he he did it properly he did it correctly so like uh, his his 1948 paper on communication theory is it's uh, it's tremendously influential but it's also just it's just rock solid and and it it really impresses me what an elegant job the guy did. You know, there's lots of things. They kind of get haphazardly discovered by a dozen people and it eventually sort of coalesces, but he really, he just absolutely knocked it out of the park the first time. So very deserving and a very interesting character. And I read this thing from cover to cover. I, I don't read most books cover to cover. (laughs) Um, I, I use the 80, 20 rule. I, you know, 80% of the values in the 20% of the book, I'm going to find it somewhere and I'll just kind of skip around. But in this case, no, like this is very, very interesting. And there's a lot more to the guy than, you know, it's like how old he was, how old was he when he actually came out with that paper? Like uh, 32,
2: just uh, really depressing because I just passed that uh, landmark uh, a couple of years ago.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) what do you, what do you do when you come up with communication theory at age 32 like what do you do for 40 or 50 right um but um um uh, is rob did did you have anything you wanted to add to jimmy's like well you got sucked into this thing too
2: yeah well it felt the same way honestly um neither of us is uh or began this process as an expert in the life of claude shannon or in information theory or engineering uh, but we, what we did have was some expertise as, as biographers, which is mm-hmm. really, a, it's a skill about um, researching and finding data about someone's life, uh, what context it developed and what makes it interesting and important, and turning that into a story that uh, works as a narrative and is an interesting, but is also faithful to um, the problems this person struggled with, uh, the, the solutions he come up with, uh, his, his lasting mark on... Uh, on the development of the fields in which he was involved. Uh, So that's, that's the way we approached it as people who were coming to it as as lay people, not as electrical engineers or information theorists, but as people who uh, really realized over the course of this project that we're indebted to what Claude Shannon did. uh, Every time we turn on a computer or use a cell phone and we were trying to reconstruct uh, how it is that he got there. Uh, We we kind of thought about it as something of an act of appreciation uh, for the groundwork that this person laid for a world that he uh, almost couldn't have envisioned, envisioned in parts, but the world we're living in. And you can't really appreciate the world we're living in unless you think about uh, what kind of intellectual efforts brought it to be. Uh, and Claude Shannon is a tremendous part of that. He deserves to be better known. I, I, hope, I hope the book uh, helped a little bit in that regard, but it's, it's hardening uh, to us to uh, see that more and more, well, I'm gonna sound like Trump now, but uh, more and more people are recognizing that uh, Claude Shannon is doing some great things. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right, right. Well, so what are what are a book anytime you write a book, a whole bunch of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. And and there's stuff that uh maybe you wish that you could have expanded on more that, you know, um, you know, wish we could have done two chapters on this thing, but 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 there's only one. What are a couple of of things that just were especially interesting to you? Um that that maybe maybe should be highlighted, or or maybe you didn't even give as much attention as you would have liked. What what did you guys find? Um, any particular parts of his life, or incidents, or things that he did?
1: I would say that that probably the most significant and most interesting, and the hardest to capture in you know 350 pages, or at least like whatever your publisher will give you is the sheer range of gadgets that he built was just incredible, right? So he wasn't, I mean, it's one thing to have sort of an Einstein-level mind that develops information theory, right, communication theory. And then you have this whole other life that he's led where he's building computers, he's building chess-playing computers, he's building flame-throwing trumpets, he's building juggling robots, he's building, you know, it goes on and on and on. And what's, what's interesting is... I mean, I would say about once a month, and Rob, you can jump in here too, but I would say about once a month, I learn about some new thing that Claude Shannon built that completely escaped us when we were doing our initial (laughs) research, and it would take a whole other book just to describe the gadgets and the inventions. Um, I mean, some of the earliest, there's some evidence that suggests that there was a very early commercial computer and maybe one of the first that was available for the public. There was a page of a, of a magazine, and we don't quite know how involved Shannon was in the creation of the device itself. But We learned after the publication of the book that he sort of had his face on it and all the rest, and <laughs> may or may not have been involved. And this is like one of the earliest computers. We learned that he, he built, uh, you know, Rubik's Cube solving machines. I mean, just endless, endless numbers of machines, and look, we, we tried in the book to talk about the, the, the gadgeteering, the creation of those items. We tried to describe the room where he did it, some of the things that he came up with. But there's just no way to get all of those devices packed into one book. I mean, honestly, it would have been the whole book. And so that, that I think, is one, is one piece where it's simply hard to capture uh, uh, 30 or 40 years of that kind of work. Um, so we hopefully did the best job we could in the space we had available.
0: I want a flame throwing trumpet, man. <laughs> That's what I want. So we saw I we just action. see it on Amazon. I think it would sell like crazy.
2: We've seen a video of it because uh, Mark Levinson, he, he directed Particle Fever, is actually coming out with a documentary on Claude Shannon called The Bit Player. And, and he was working on it independently. Oh, really? of. Yeah, so he's working on it independently of our book. And we happened to cross paths in both of our processes and helped him out and he helped us out. And we, we kind of got a symbiotic relationship going. And the other day we watched an early cut of his uh of his documentary and he got claude chen and son to demonstrate the flaming trumpet uh for everyone at the beginning of the movie so it's it's fantastic it's totally worth seeing and it, it, it works as a trumpet but it also shoots uh, flames in addition to music out of the bell so it's it's super cool and the movie's going to be great uh uh jimmy and i are both in it as talking heads right now so that's exciting um but it, it's it's a really good uh primer on uh who this guy was and and why he's important and i hope uh, i hope a lot of people see it
0: well, I can just imagine the product reviews on Amazon for your flame-throwing trumpet. You know, I had my son's birthday party last week and I just completely incinerated Uncle Jack. You know, the guy the guy's been ruining our our life long enough and you know, he finally knocked him out. That's
1: well, great. it it's funny too because he, you know, part of the the, the story behind that is his son, I guess, was performing at some kind of school function or something. And, and they wanted to, like, liven up the performance of the <laughs> trumpet. And so Shannon just looked at him, I guess, one day and just said, well, what if the trumpet also shot flames in addition to being, you know, playing music? And um, and so that's what, I mean, it was literally just stuff like that that led him to these kinds of uh, inventions. Now, what he did, and I hope what comes across in the book is, like, it's one thing to say that, it's another to take a question like that that can seem absurd or fanciful and then sort of take it to its logical extreme, right? Uh, and actually try to build a trumpet that breathes fire. Um, and, and he did this over and over again. There were you know inventions that he created where one question would lead him further than most people would be willing to go. Uh, and in a way, that actually is a, a, is a useful analogy for thinking about his, the totality of his career, which is something that he was just things that questions that arose to him that he would just take further than where other people were willing to go. Um, and the, the flaming is definitely probably the most, uh, the most visual, the most uh, esoteric example, but there are others.
0: So I was wondering uh, about, you know, he, he becomes this legendary figure at Bell labs. And I, there was a little bit in your book about people being uh, maybe a little bit intimidated and stuff. Um, but he seems to have, um, not taking himself so seriously as to kind of get, get sucked into some kind of uh, you know, well, I'm just going to sit here and be a demigod or something like I I could imagine other people getting a little seduced by that and um, becoming less productive or resting on past accomplishments. And I I I just don't get a sense of that at all.
2: Well, Shannon was someone who, uh as people said invents the field of information theory and then solves most of the major problems in the field uh, in one fell swoop so the neat thing is that that gives him a ton of intellectual freedom uh, both at bell labs and then uh, later on at mit where he takes that professorship and the interesting thing about shannon what he does with that time and what he does with that freedom is that he, he absolutely doesn't rest on his laurels or become just sort of a figurehead in the field he looks into all sorts of new problems that uh uh, that, that are worth his interest and in, that keep him creative and sharp and on his toes. There are things like uh, stock picking, uh, developing mathematical tools for meeting the stock market, uh, things like value investing and sitting on all sorts of corporate boards for tech startups, things like studying the mathematics of juggling uh, and the uh, mathematics of gambling, um, and things like uh, building that uh, early AI chess machine that Jimmy mentioned. Uh, so, he is really someone who is not content to stay in one field, uh, the field of information theory, but, but to go wherever his curiosity took him. And, and by the way, that, that was something that inspired us in, in working on Shannon's life and writing this book. And, you know, as I mentioned, uh, going into a field that was neither our uh, first field, uh, going into um, a, a life and a, uh, and a creative environment at Bell Labs and MIT in the kind of mid 20th century that, that we weren't familiar with off the bat, uh, we really thought about it as getting outside of our intellectual comfort zone. And it was just, it was a pleasure to learn so much new stuff and pass it on to the rest of the world. And I, I think that that was something that itself was in the spirit of what Shannon did with his life.
0: I found out quite a bit after I became familiar with his primary work that a few years before that, he'd actually done a thesis on genetics. Um, and and that was very interesting. um. Can you talk in any more detail um, or maybe g- give people a sense of what, what that first paper was about? And, and then I, I've got another question about that uh, after we get done with that part.
2: Yeah, well, I, I could tackle that one because that was, uh, that was part of the book that I uh, originally researched and wrote up. Um, so the background is that Claude Shannon is at MIT as a master's student and then a PhD student under uh, Vannevar Bush who is um, one of the big deal scientists and uh, uh, organizers of, of scientific bureaucracy in the day. Uh, he's Shannon's supervisor, and he, under him, uh, Shannon does his master's thesis, which is hugely important, and is all about um, basically working the concepts of Boolean logic uh, and binary, uh, uh, binary algebra onto uh, the structures of computing machines, onto things like uh, the differential analyzer, which was this early uh, uh, analog mechanical computer. So anyway, what Shannon does in that project is uh, laying the groundwork for why we uh, compute in zeros and ones. But anyway, after Shannon does this, um, Bush gets this crazy idea that Shannon could be a genius in pretty much any field. So he comes up almost on a dare and says, uh, okay, Shannon, why don't you go to uh, Cold Spring Harbor, uh, which is a big genetics laboratory in Long Island, and work uh, work up a whole new dissertation on the topic of genetics. Uh, pick, your, pick your question, pick your research field. Uh, just come back with a dissertation in genetics, and you'll get a PhD in mathematics from MIT. Um, so uh, Shannon says, okay, why not? He seems a bit reluctant off the bat because he just, he knows nothing of the field when he starts. Uh, he said he didn't even know what the words meant, things like uh, allele and, uh, um, and, and even, even gene. He didn't really know uh, many of the details, but he goes out there. He works with a, a woman named Barbara Stoddard Burks, who's a major uh, researcher in the field of genetics. Um, and, and what Cold Spring Harbor has at the time, which is a little bit embarrassing, is that it has a uh, eugenics records office. Um, back before um, the time when eugenics is really discredited in the US uh, by its association with, uh, with uh, fascism and Nazism, uh, it's, it's, a, a, and scientific racism and so on. So it's, it's going out of fashion at the time. The laboratory is about to shut down and neither Burks nor uh, Bush nor Shannon were any kind of eugenicist. but what the eugenicists had built up over the last few decades were these uh, huge records of um genetic and uh, hereditary information, so what Shannon does is not really uh, in experimental genetics, but it's in sort of the uh, uh what he calls an algebra for genetics uh It's all about symbolization, and what he comes up with is a whole new system by which you can symbolize the uh, frequencies of certain genes in uh in individuals uh in uh, populations and so on, and you can actually work out by a kind of um uh, uh, matrix algebra what happens when two populations crossbreed and what the frequencies of those genes will be after x number of generations of crossbreeding. So what he's coming up with is not really a new discovery but a new uh, um, a new system of symbolizing uh, uh what happens in the genetics of populations and and if we can derive any interesting results from this. So what happens is that uh Bush has uh, Burks and other experts in the field look over this work they're all very impressed and they're especially impressed that Shannon essentially learned this field from scratch uh, and wrote original groundbreaking work in about 18 months, uh, which speaks to how crazy smart he was. Um, but you know, he gets his PhD on the strength of this, uh, but he never publishes it. Uh, he never goes into the field of genetics full time and he sort of lets it lie. And we speculate in the book, you know, based on some of what he wrote and what some of Bush wrote, um, that Shannon realized that most of his talent was in fields like uh, information and communication and engineering. Um, he was glad to have done original work in genetics, but he didn't want to be a geneticist because, uh, it would have meant essentially selling this whole new notation system, selling this new, um, uh, system of, of symbols to a whole community in which you really didn't have much of a toehold. It, it would have been sort of a marginal career and not a very interesting career compared to the other pots, uh, uh Shannon had on the stove at the time. So he puts it aside. He might've published it, uh, if he'd wanted to or gone to the effort, but he said in that respect... He said, oh, I've I've always been lazy. I haven't really published things unless I absolutely had to. And and no one made him. Um, So the neat thing is, after the fact, uh, for the collected Shannon papers that came out uh, in uh, early uh, 2000s, um, they uh, asked uh, James Crow, who's a pretty well-known geneticist these days, to review Shannon's work. Um, And Crow and a number of other people who looked at it said, yeah, this was in advance of where the field was in the uh, early 1940s. If Shannon had published it, uh, it would have been helpful. And maybe we would have... uh, we would have advanced the field of genetics um, by, uh, by a smidge. We would, have, uh, we would have saved some time in developing his ideas later on, and it's a pity he didn't go out of the trouble of publishing it because it might have caught on. Uh, of course, if he had done that and invested the time in it, maybe we would have lost out on what he did in information theory. So it's, it's a tough trade-off. But it speaks right. to the fact that, one, the people around Shannon, people like Bush, were always big on pushing him to get out of his comfort zone and get into new spheres of activity and inquiry and, and work. And two, uh, Shannon internalizes this and makes it a big part of what makes him special as a scientist and a thinker. So that even though he didn't become a geneticist, uh, he became a really interdisciplinary uh, jack of all trades type. Uh, and maybe he wouldn't have gotten there if not for being pushed into this field at a formative time in his intellectual career.
0: That's, that's really interesting. Well, well, his later communication theory work has, huge implications for genetics um, because a DNA transcription and translation is a digital communication system and DNA is a digital storage system. And so all of the rules and all the principles of error correction, error detection, everything, it turns out is very, very, very significant in how even cells operate. Uh, Like on on a scale of one to 10, how much did he engage with, like like looking backwards, like so there was the genetics project, then there was information theory, but was uh, to what extent did he close the loop and uh, get, uh, cross-pollinate these fields? But how much of that actually happened from his perspective? You
1: know, he was actually, uh, he found the whole exercise of Extending information theory into these unfamiliar fields somewhat suspect. Um, so, so it was interesting because when information theory is published, uh, it, it, it generates tremendous buzz uh, and it becomes a sort of uh, a, a kind of scientific fashion for a period where people are applying information theory to, you know, uh, physics, they're applying information theory to bird song, they're applying, I mean, they're applying information theory to everything and he is very quick to caution the community that what he has designed is a theory that is specific to engineering and that has certain uh, applications and that what is necessary is further research that's going to take that theory and, and, and kind of develop it. And so he actually, in, in, in what is, I think an extraordinary moment for a variety of reasons, but he, what he does is he, he sees all of this happening, right? He sees that this thing is taking off. You know, in in our modern sort of parlance, it's gone viral, Uh, information theory is everywhere. He's getting written up in magazines, he's getting attention on television, people are talking about him in the same breath as Watson and Crick and and, um, Richard Feynman, they're saying he's one of the great scientists in the United States of America. And rather than let all of this go to his head and become a kind of celebrity scientist, he actually writes this amazing uh, editorial um, called The Bandwagon. And what he what he argues, and we write about it in the book. But what we what he argues is like the the important thing for engineer, for information theorists and for engineers who are studying information theory is to continue to do research. It's not to let this go to our heads. Yes, it's tempting to use information theory. To, uh, to acquire funding for this project or that project. Uh, but the more important thing is that we approach these problems with rigor and that um, that the temptation to for them to become popular is just that, a temptation that should be avoided. Um, and so it's, it's an extraordinary moment because he's a very, he's still a pretty young guy. I mean, he's in his mid-30s when all of that happens. And everyone's talking about him and his theory that he developed as the next, you know, as the next theory of everything as, as more important than Einstein's work. And Shannon has every interest in inflating information theory's importance, right so he has mm-hmm. every reason to make it bigger than it actually is, and in spite of that, he counsels moderation uh, and so it's it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary room of, of humility uh, and of of just showing how grounded he was about the work that he was doing uh, that in spite of the possibility of continued fame, uh, maybe some fortune, certainly academic accolades. Uh, he's telling everybody, look, you know, the work isn't done yet. Uh, there's still a lot to be done, uh, and and we're not. He's not yet convinced about the applications. Now he's in. He's actually not. He's not opposed to the idea that it would be applied in other fields. He he, he does think that he's developed something significant, and mm-hmm. so the idea that it would apply in in genetics makes perfect sense, uh, and at other fields as well. His issue is that people were essentially using it to get. You know, research funding for something they wanted, right? Uh, right? Or, or worse, abusing it by doing research that was insufficiently rigorous. Mm-hmm. And so, Shannon is is I think one of the things I hope we demonstrated in the book is just how intellectually honest he was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was not someone who was interested in you know publishing for the sake of publishing. He was not somebody who was interested in in drawing the limelight to himself. And it's one of the aspects of his character. You know that 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 stands out. It's also part of the reason why he's not as well known today as many others uh, who might have done who've done, who've done comparable work, um, because in many cases they they gave in they they took the lec- they did the lecture circuit they went on TV they wrote the popular books etc. Um, I mean they had to pull teeth to get Shannon to do a popularized version of information theory, uh, and he was very reluctant to do any kind of media, and in all of the interview notes between him and journalists at the time, there's almost always a moment where there was one famous moment where someone says, you know, have you found fame and, and the kind of attention you've gotten to be difficult. And he says, Well, the only difficult thing is that I have to take questions from people like you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's delivered with sarcasm and in, in in jest. But part of him is saying, you know, the thing is, I just want to get back to my work. So can you all just, you know, leave me alone. Um, but he was that kind of person. And so it's a long way of answering your question, but I think hopefully it illustrates for people that yeah, he, he was uncomfortable with the idea that this thing that he developed was going to be abused or used incorrectly.
0: What was his relationship to the military? There, so, that's a whole yeah. chapter of his life. Oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a
2: long chapter. It's, it's an interesting one. Um, so it starts off um, around uh, the time of you know, the beginning of the U.S. entry into World War II. Um, Shannon is going through a tough period in his life because, as we write in the book, uh, his first marriage uh, was in the process of breaking up. So it, it's personally traumatic. And on top of that, uh, in the background, uh, of course, the war is going on in Europe and it's pretty clear that one way or another, um, the US is going to enter into the war. And if it does, there's going to be a draft. Um, and, and Shannon, even though he uh, wants to contribute to the war effort, is uh, also really afraid of going over to Europe or to Asia and being shot at. Uh, he didn't feel like he was physically strong enough to uh, to handle military life. So a couple of things happen. Uh, one. Um, at the time his marriage is breaking up, he starts to get contract work to work uh, with the National um, Defense Research Council, uh, with which his former advisor, Vannevar Bush, plays a role, um, and uh, goes over to uh, work on war contracts with the uh, with the War Department uh, through Bell Labs. And this is how he becomes, uh, ultimately, from a, goes from a contractor to a full-time worker at Bell Labs. Um, and he works on a number of projects, uh, some of which have to do with information theory, some of which are a little more tangentially related. Um, He works on uh, the subject of fire control, which is basically using advanced statistics to predict uh, where enemy uh, planes are going to be so that we can predict where we're going to shoot at them to shoot them down, Uh, which is, um, you're considering how fast the planes and the ammunition are traveling uh, involves a lot of high level uh, probabilistic calculations, uh, which he takes advantage of later on for thinking about information probability. Uh, Also gets involved, which was his real kind of lifelong passion on the subject of uh, uh, cryptography. Um, so he writes uh, during the war, he has um, a great uh, work of cryptography um, uh, that essentially proves that there are the existence of um, a theoretically unbreakable code. Uh, it's something called a one-time pad code. And and without getting into the details, we could say that Shannon chose this code, which had existed for a, a number of, uh, for, for quite some time. Um, he actually proves that if it was executed in the right way, uh, which is pretty infeasible in real life, in real wartime conditions, it, but but theoretically uh, it would be an utterly unbreakable code. And this is sort of a neat theoretical result. Um, and it gets sort of deposited into the archives of the intelligence bureaucracy and then Shannon never hears what happens to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, he he said that these cryptographers are really secretive guys. I have no idea what they're doing and they don't know so. all. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that, that beginning to think about information in terms of codes, uh, recoding, uh, decoding, uh, scrambling and unscrambling information um, was a huge influence on his ultimate work uh, in in the information theory paper that comes out in 1948. Uh, He said that he's working on information theory and cryptography uh, essentially simultaneously. And he said it was a big flow of ideas from one project to the other. Um, They had a huge degree of mutual influence. So you can't really even say that uh, one landed to the other, rather that he was working on both sets of ideas uh, at virtually the same time. So it would be hard to say that... uh, we would get to uh, Shannon's 48 paper in information theory without his previous uh, work with the military. Um, so anyway, later on, after the paper comes out, uh, he becomes a, sort of a celebrity in the field, as we mentioned. Um, and the uh, the precursor to the uh, uh, to the NSA National uh, Security Agency um, asks uh, for Shannon's help on subjects related to signals intelligence. Um, and uh, there's a letter we use for a, a chapter writing that include a chapter heading. Uh, that includes the line, we urgently request the assistance of Dr. Claudie Shannon, uh, which Mm. shows, uh, I think, shows that he was sought after by these types. Um, Unfortunately for us, a lot of his work uh, uh, still remains classified, uh, as does a lot of work Mm. in the time period, so it's hard to say exactly what he did. Um, It's interesting though, uh, he didn't especially like it, he tried to get out of it whenever he could, Uh, tried to um, uh, plead all sorts of excuses and call in sick when he could and take absences. and also, when later interviewers asked him what was going on, um, uh, again, he was pretty evasive on the subject, uh, also because what, he recognized that a lot of what he did was still uh, top secret or higher classified. he um, wasn't really liberty to discuss it. So it would be interesting to know if that ever does get declassified, what Shannon was doing for the NSA or its precursors. But uh, there's some things we still don't know. Maybe, maybe the next Shannon biography can dig into it in a couple of decades.
0: So how hard did you have to dig for some of this stuff? Like obviously, you know, you can go to the library and get some of this, but I mean, you guys went pretty deep. You got any crazy stories about, you know, the links to which you, you went to get some interesting anecdote?
1: Well, it it is actually, um, part of this was a bit of a detective hunt because it, you know, he was not an especially public figure. So it's not as though there were, you know, hours and hours and hours of interviews, or kind of, you know, minutes of how he spent his day, that kind of thing. Uh, there are 22 boxes, at the Library of Congress, um, mm-hmm. but that's a, that's one part of the the record. Um, we also uh, interviewed, you know, l- let me let me actually have two separate thoughts. One is we were in a bit of a race against time, in a somewhat morbid way. Uh, I think three, maybe four people that we spoke to. During the course of writing the project, which is about a half decade uh, passed away uh, before the project was ever released. Um, and so a lot of the people who were his contemporaries or friends uh, are getting old um, or, or they're already they're already gone. And so there were some people, for example, we really wanted to speak to that we couldn't get to. A good example is the artificial intelligence pioneer, Marvin Minsky. Uh, we traded some emails with him, but we were just never able to lock down our, our interview. Uh, and it was really unfortunate because um, among other things, the two of them collaborated on a wonderful little device called the ultimate machine. And if your if you're, um, listeners or viewers want to go and Google ultimate machine, they'll see what it is, which is a box that has a switch on the outside. When you flip the switch, the box flips open, a hand emerges out of the box, and it flips the switch back and it just retracts in itself. So the whole purpose of the machine is simply to turn itself off. Uh, and it's this sort of great, great joke, this really great cool. parody and and by the way um you know i have a two and a half year old and and my daughter loves this thing <laughs> she just thinks it's the greatest thing ever um but but that was a, a marvin minsky claude shannon collaboration and it's a shame we never got to to speak to, to dr minsky um we did however track down among others uh his ex-wife his you know uh second wife she has passed away since um an ex-girlfriend uh a running buddy, uh, somebody he used to jog with in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. um, several former students, uh, people whose thesis or dissertations he advised, uh, colleagues from Bell Laboratories, uh, including a couple people who had offices near him. Um, So we were able to find a whole host of people who knew and interacted and spent time with him. But you can imagine the amount of time it takes to find out who those people are, get get them to agree to talk. Um, You know, the Shannon family was extraordinarily gracious with us uh, toward mm. the end of this project. They opened up the family photo album and a lot of the photos that are in the middle of the book actually come directly from the Shannon family photo album, which is, mm. which is incredible. Wow. But it took us, it took us three years, maybe more of, uh, of, of pushing and of, of gently asking them for time before they ever came, they gave us time. And really? three, I mean, three years before you know if you're going to get, you know, some of the seminal, seminal interviews that you need for a book. Um, now, again, I said they were incredibly gracious, and I will also say they have reason to be uh, skeptical. Um, things have been written about their dad in the past that simply aren't true. Mm-hmm. And we needed to prove to them that we were going to be very thorough, that we were mm-hmm. finding things that no one else had found. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we did. We uncovered all kinds of things that have never really um, made it to, uh, to, to center stage about Shannon's life. And part of what was fun about this project, I think, and, and Rob, jump in too, but you you start to feel sort of like um, like engineerings version of Indiana Jones like you're 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 traveling to find these people you are digging through archives you're looking in documents and all of a sudden you find something that no one else has written about and we as non-engineers and as non-specialists i think we're able to come at this from a different sensibility so for example um, there's a, a a pdf a very long pdf that's available online which is the people who put together Shannon's collected papers uh, were both, you know, people in the field. They're, they're both engineers. And his collected papers are a series of just, you know, some of his finest work. But what was left out of that, what was left on the cutting room floor for them, was this very rich, roughly, I think, 900-page PDF. And it's something like page 600 or 700. There is this, like a, a 10-page document that is a speech called Creative Thinking. And this is a, a, a speech that he gives uh, to his colleagues at Bell Laboratories about Essentially, how to think like a genius uh, and like how to genius think. So this is a this is one of the 20th century's great minds reflecting on how great minds work. Now, Rob and I came across this when we said to ourselves, oh, my God, this is I mean, this is manna from heaven. This is a whole chapter. And it is indeed. We turned turn that speech into a whole chapter in the book. But that had never been published before. It had never, wow. it, it, it was just trapped in a PDF somewhere. And there are good reasons for that. His collected papers coming from engineers need to be engineering papers. Yeah. Um, but for non-specialists and for people who think of Shannon, not just as an engineer, but as a great thinker and as a great mind, it, it spoke to us and we hope it speaks to the audience. But we had moment after moment like that and I, I hope we were thorough. What is interesting is the joke Rob made about, you know, two decades from now, there might be another Shannon biography. It wouldn't surprise me because there is just so much in his life. And as you peel back one layer, you get others, right? Um, he was one of the first people to attend a 1953 conference on artificial intelligence. And because AI is all the rage right now, That conference and the people who were there and the work that was done there has come back, you know, into the limelight. And Shannon wasn't an active, from what we can gather, Shannon wasn't the most active participant. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he was there and and in the company of the people who were there um, means something. And we didn't really get to explore that in the book necessarily, uh, at least not in the way we would have liked. So we were, I think, as thorough as we could have been given the constraints we were working with, some of them self-imposed. Um, but it was it was it was this exciting kind of uh, race against both time and and resources and and also just uncovering things that that no one knew. I mean, we we, we found photos that nobody had seen before. We found a a long lost profile of Claude Shannon in Vogue magazine. Um, so he had been profiled by Vogue, and I, I think we might have been some of the first people after the author himself to have sort of stumbled on this and mm. and written it up and talked about it a bit. Um, so we, we definitely had moments like that. And it was interesting to write about somebody who did a lot of his best work in the thirties you know, uh, and 40s, but who, who stayed alive until 2001, because there were a lot of people who are alive today who interacted with him. Uh, so it was interesting both to get the sort of historical take, the things we found from archives and footage and interviews and all the rest, and then also to talk to some people who said, oh yeah, I, you know, I went to a conference with Shannon or I, I used to run with him in Massachusetts um and it's so that the, oh yeah Sorry. so that it, it proved to be an, a, a kind of treasure hunt but the a treasure hunt of the best kind
0: if uh if you could have shannon back for two hours oh boy and <laughs> um well maybe you we can take a couple swipes at that question let's start with mystery boxes that you would like to be opened hmm. like and maybe that's a story of, well, there's this mysterious thing and nobody really knows. Start with that.
1: Hmm. It would be uh, – yeah, i talked for a bit, Rob. You, you you can you can lead it off.
2: Yeah, mystery boxes we'd like to be open. Well, yeah. there's one thing that we would like to get into that we didn't go into in a lot of detail in the book, uh, and I'm not sure how much of it is out there and how much it just remain to be collected. But uh, Shannon did put a tremendous amount of in, uh, intelligence and ingenuity into uh, the theory of uh, being the stock market and stock picking. And we were talking about uh, – Um, That would be a fun thing to expand on. We never really uh, got into a ton of detail in the book for an interesting reason, which is that Shannon, by the time he died, was a very wealthy man. He lived in a really nice house um, that was uh, inherited by, uh, uh, originally the house had belonged to, I think, the great-great-granddaughter of Thomas Jefferson in Massachusetts. Mm. So it's a very nice house on the lakeside, Winchester, Massachusetts. Um, And and he said that his wealth didn't come from proving theorems. It came from uh, investing in the stock market. Mm. So people naturally wondered, uh, what was Claude Shannon's secret? Uh, why was he such a great <laughs> investor? Um, so a uh, couple of things. One, uh, he and his wife, Betty, were were fascinated by by playing the market and by doing the ups and downs every day. They, they read the stock pages every day. Uh, we spoke to his daughter, Peggy, and said that's just what they did around the breakfast table. You always start off by reading the business pages and looking at the stocks from the previous day. Um, and Shannon did use a lot of his information theory work to... Uh, make some contributions thinking about, uh, you know, the, the noise and signals uh, generated by, um, uh, by the market. Um, and he actually delivered a lecture on uh, stock picking at MIT in under the rotunda of, uh, in the, in the lecture hall under the rotunda of the famous MIT dome. Um, there was his largest uh, public lecture ever. It was standing room, uh, about his theory of stock picking. And, and I think part <laughs> of the, <laughs> of course it shows you what people are really interested in, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, Part of the theory was how you could, uh, by timing your uh, trades right, make money on a stock that was uh, continually uh, losing value. Um, and, and someone asked him if, if Shannon did this in his own investing. He said, no, the commissions would kill you. <laughs> so, oh. so the interesting thing is that uh, even though he was really interested in playing the market, he really got his money from um, uh, being on corporate boards and from having early investments in uh, uh, things that went on to become major tech companies just because he was plugged into that network, MIT. Um, a lot of his grad students and other people that he associated with at m i t became uh uh founders of big tech companies especially teledyne uh which was very big in the eighties uh shannon um was an early uh stockholder in that and uh he essentially uh got the stock uh, either for um mainly for his work uh, advising these boards um um and uh just let it appreciate and grow in value. So he was essentially a buy and hold investor, mm-hmm. uh, even though he came up with all sorts of fancy theories for how stock picking worked. So what we'd be interested in is one, to figure out um, uh, a little bit more about how Shannon came by, his theories of stock picking. And, and, and obviously there are people today who still use a lot of his insights and become sort of um, uh, not so revolutionary anymore in the days of uh, automated trading. But it'd be interesting to see in a little more detail the impact of information theory and claude shannon on uh, uh how the stock market works today um second it would be interesting to see what he actually did in his associations with these uh uh with these early tech companies um one anecdote we mentioned in the book i uh, had to do with teledyne i think um he's a former grad student of his who's working at that uh, company uh asked shannon about um investing in um speech recognition and speech uh speech synthesis speech synthesis um they were going to buy a. Uh, a potential company that worked in those areas, and they asked for Shannon's opinion. And he said, based on his expertise in artificial intelligence, he didn't think those fields were going anywhere. Uh, and he recommended against it, and they followed his advice. And of course, um, you know, these days uh, those fields are a lot more advanced. But but for the time frame that Shannon was thinking about, this is in the uh, early to mid 80s. Uh, he he was right on. That was a good prediction. Those fields fields didn't really catch on until uh, many decades later. So it'll be interesting to see if there are other anecdotes like that. And we're we're sure there are but that was a place in which uh, we didn't do uh, a ton
0: of digging. Jimmy, any mystery boxes for you?
1: Yeah, there are a couple and they are more more of the personal um pieces. The the first is there's a period in his kind of uh early to mid 20s where Shannon goes through what what we can best assess was a kind of depressive episode, right? Um we we have kind of two sources that confirmed it. We have some sense that you know the the draft for world war ii is going on right around that time adds pressure to him because he does not want to serve overseas he's in a career transition going from mit to princeton to figuring out what he's going to do professionally and it'd just be interesting i don't think he'd be willing to talk about it um (laughs) ironically but i but i think that it'd be interesting to know what he was going through what that period of his life was like um he had already done extraordinary work, but that was no guarantee of employment. It was no guarantee of later success. It was no guarantee that he could be kept safe from the from the war—a war that he had again. He was he was um, not interested in, in joining the service, uh, and so it'd be interesting to see kind of what he thought about that that early twenties, mid twenties period of his life. The second thing that's still a bit of a mystery is um, actually two more things. The first is that he he had a really a uh, difficult relationship with his mother uh, later in life. Um, they, uh, apparently the last fight they had was over a plate of cookies that she burned, uh, but it was the the last, it was a straw that broke the camel's back, I think, and there were some other things that had weighed heavily on that relationship. And it'd be interesting to getting, interested in getting him talking about that and seeing what, what if any, you know, issues. He, he was also distant from his father a bit, So those sorts of things would be interesting. Now, again, I add the asterisk of I just don't think that he would be interested at all in (laughs) talking about it. With that said, if we had those two hours, the things I think he would be most interested in now would be developments in things like cryptocurrency and developments in things like artificial intelligence. And from from our perspective. Getting him to talk about his past would be like pulling teeth. Getting him to talk about the future would be easy. Uh, and one of my favorite chapters in the book is where he and Alan Turing are basically spending every day at tea at Bell Labs for a period of several months talking about the future, the future of computing, the future of the brain, the future of, of research uh, on those topics. And from my perspective, I think if you got him back today and he was, he was quickly up to speed on everything that had happened, uh, I'm guessing that he would have some really interesting things to say about where you know fields like AI and and, and the crypto world of cryptocurrency are going
0: oh that that's that's very good that's very good so you you, you put the book out and uh, you know and then and then I'm sure people started coming out of the woodwork uh, what, what's come up since the book came out that that you guys have found interesting or edifying
1: hmm well, I think let let me let me i'll offer two the first is we we did a um one of the things we did during the early launch of the book was we did a reddit ama uh because we figured like of the communities that would you know be interested in claude shannon there's probably no bigger community than reddit just given the range of technologists and engineers and gadgeteers also just the scale of reddit as an online community and so we figured you know we'll go and do an ama hopefully some people show up and and it'll be great and that ended up being this, you know, uh, almost eight thousand upvotes. I mean, a really incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um. And and neither Rob or I, you know, I think we're probably both sort of casual redditors at best, uh, and I think that might even be generous. And so to go on, we actually spent the entire day doing the AMA. So it got it got to be so good that we just stuck around. And part of it is we had held all this stuff back for five years, right? Wow. So we had a flow of stories. And we found that the people on Reddit asked such great questions. We were able to give the kind of lengthy answers that we had used to annoy our families for five years. And so, and these people actually wanted to hear what the hell we were talking about, which is great. But one of the people who came out of the woodwork was somebody who, um, had been a friend of one of Shannon's children. And he actually had, had, uh, sort of secured himself an informal, you know, you call it an internship with Shannon, um, working on building gadgets. Uh, and, and he got in touch with us. We had had, to, had some back and forth on Reddit. I think we were I think you, Rob, you might have been in touch with him over email. but he he said a line, I think it was still on the AMA. He said, um, that was uh, the most enjoyable summer of my life uh, was working with him just because of how well, the kind of person he was and the kind of the way his mind worked. And I think of that that story, I wish we had had it obviously before the book went to print. but I think of that as, as it confirmed for me, what the book revealed, which was that Shannon could have been somebody I think who was a more distant and ethereal and somewhat cold scientific figure. I mean, just given the scale of his theoretical accomplishments, you could see him being the kind of person who was unapproachable and was you know not I mean, was sort of like oh I'm I'm too good to do x y and z. Um, but he is an incredibly down to earth person. Uh, and that, that came through in our interviews. And then when we saw that anecdote where he just sort of takes on one of his, you know, one of these people, one of these young kids as, a, as somebody who works on gadgets with him, I mean, it just confirmed for us that that, that um, part of his character is something I hope we captured in the book. The second thing that's happened since the book has come out is the development of this documentary that that Rob was talking about. And what's interesting is it's not just a straight documentary. Uh, Mark actually went out and found an actor to play Claude Shannon and mm. half uh, it's by,
2: uncanny how much he looks like Claude Shannon.
1: Yeah, apparently oh. people who knew Shannon have actually asked Mark, like, where did you get that footage? I didn't realize Claude had done that interview.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, yeah hey, for real. That's so, a little unusual. Well, yeah. so
1: Mark, Mark is a filmmaker. He's also a PhD in physics. And so he has a, a great deal of scientific fluency. And um, and part of what's been, it's been, it's we, we were able to for, very fortunate to be able to see an early kind of cut of the film. And... It is a little eerie to see something after doing the book. It's eerie to see something like that on screen um, because it comes to life in a way we couldn't have imagined. And so um, we're look. The book's had a, a fair bit of success. It's won some awards. You know, we've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I am really excited for people to see the the film, and I think they should go. Um, I don't know that there's anywhere they can go right now. Mark has another film that uh, some you know, called Particle Fever that did very well. Uh, and it was about the super collider and about the search for the the God particle, the Higgs boson uh, particle. Um, he's an extraordinary filmmaker, and this Shannon movie is gonna is gonna introduce Shannon to a whole bunch of new people. Uh, and and we're excited to help him. But I think that's the other development is actually seeing what Mark has found, seeing the angles that he explored, and then watching an actor bring Claude Shannon to life. That's been pretty cool.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing about one of the angles we really, we appreciated, or I appreciated, in Mark's uh, film when we just saw it a couple of weeks ago, is that you know in our telling we were really emphasizing how much Shannon derived from his work uh, for the defense establishment and doing things like um, cryptography and fire control work, and how much that influenced his information theory paper. And I, I think that's true. And it's interesting to see that Mark's take on it was very much that although um, the chronology isn't any different. Uh, He really brings out the degree to which Shannon was frustrated at the time by the fact that he could never get enough time to work on what he thought was his life's work, his real passion project, except as sort of a side gig um, on weekends and evenings and all that. Uh, You know, Shannon worked on it for almost a decade. uh, And maybe it would have been faster if he'd been able to devote uh, his full-time energies to it. But it was interesting that I think we brought out a lot of the continuities and Mark brought out a lot of the frustrations of the fact that Shannon could never just sit down and work five or six days a week on the thing that he cared about the most uh, for many, many years during the war. Uh, of course, it wasn't a sacrifice on the scale that most people made uh, who were sacrificed to the war, but it was it was something. And I think that the pathos of that, uh, it, it really struck me that um, what it's like to be frustrated when you have a project you care about, uh, a, and you can't devote your full time to it because of other pressing concerns. And I think that was a big part of Shannon's life. Uh, on the other hand, it's hard to be picky when it came out as such a revolutionary result. It's hard to say, that those frustrations um, uh, weren't integral to his creative process and weren't integral to what he came up with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any other post publication strawberries for you?
1: Um, well, you know, what has been interesting, actually, the, the, um, the tech community sort of Silicon Valley has embraced Shannon in a way that I don't think either Rob or I fully understood Uh, So we've had people, everybody from like the CTO of Amazon to, Mm. you know, people at Andreessen Horowitz uh, have all been very generous in giving the book its own platform, sort of inviting us to talk about it, to to give them, you know, our window into what we learned. But then also people have just been writing really wonderfully kind notes to us saying, you know, this, he's a hero of mine. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that that word hero comes up over and over and over again. And I think Rob and I thought of him as, you know, an interesting figure. We thought of him as an important figure, but I'm not sure that we ever used the word heroic. And so what's been interesting is to see a whole generation of developers and engineers and technologists and, and people who are, are involved in all these cutting edge fields say, no, this guy is, is inspirational to me. He's not just important, he's not just interesting, he's actually somebody I admire very deeply. Um, and that is something, that, again, Rob and I came in as non-experts. So it's probably something that we, we couldn't have been bitten by the bug in the same way. Partly, it's a good thing that we weren't because then yep. we are able to be somewhat more balanced in the biography. But it's actually been incredible because people, people have told us how his work is what inspired them. And now they've gone back and read about his life, right? And, and so often it's the sort of reverse. You come to a life and then you discover the work. Here, people find the work and then discover the life. And so that's been one of the things that's happened post-publication is I think for a lot of people, he is a model of what a research scientist can be. Uh, And, and I, I, I don't know that um, that we either of us fully appreciated that the book would have that kind of effect, but it's been, it's been really heartening to have that happen.
0: Uh, Definitely a model research scientist and definitely a person worthy of emulation. Well, gentlemen, Thank you for writing this. Again, I highly recommend A Mind at Play, How Claude Shannon Invented the Information Age by Jimmy and Rob. Uh, Thank you guys for being on today. Thanks for your time. Great stories. I love your passion and uh, wish you guys the best. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure to talk about Claude Shannon with you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having
0: us. and, And I hope
2: people check out the book and get to enjoy it.
0: Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.